Welcome to the Thinking Faith Podcast, a collection of talks and Q&A that address the big questions we're all asking about God, life and purpose. The great Nobel Prize winning physicist Albert Einstein famously and troublingly correctly said that it has become appallingly obvious that our technology has surpassed our humanity. What does he mean by that? Well, the evidence, sadly, is strikingly clear and has been increasingly so in the 70 or 80 years since he said it. It doesn't matter how well we advance technologically. It doesn't matter how well our living standards, our technological insights, our innovation, our inventing, our science advances. We continue to struggle with the same element of human brokenness that's inside every person. Some people incorrectly try and make the assertion that as technology gets better, people get better. The technology and morality track alongside each other. But as it's been correctly said, sadly, there is no Moore's law for morality, for moral innovation, for moral improvement. We continue to struggle with the same internal brokenness. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian Nobel Prize winner, famously said that the line that divides good and evil cuts through the heart of every person. The line that divides good and evil cuts through every human heart. And Einstein's insight is correct. doesn't matter how well we advance, there's always a struggle with human brokenness. In fact, in the 20th century alone, we killed more of each other than we did in the preceding 19 centuries put together. And in this 21st century, sadly, we are well on the way to duplicating or even a worse performance than that. So how do we make sense of technology in the context of the Christian message and in the context of theology. How do we develop a theology of technology? Well, the word theology simply means the knowledge or study of God. And so a theology of technology is effectively when it's being done well and thought through correctly. How does a knowledge of God, how does our understanding of who God is, help us make sense of and use technology better? And I'm not going to be able to go through anywhere near all of what's relevant to this topic, but I want to talk about a theology of technology in the context of three things. First of all, the amorality of technology. Secondly, the individualizing effect of technology. And thirdly, the opportunity of technology. The amorality of technology, the individualizing effect of technology, and the opportunity of technology. So first of all then, the amorality of technology. What do I mean by that? Well, Adam Smith, who's one of the seminal writers in the context of developing free market economics, he wrote The Wealth of Nations. He wasn't the only one to come up with the idea of free markets, but he was one of the seminal thinkers. And in The Wealth of Nations, it talked about how deregulating financial markets, how the free movement of people and labor and capital would optimize wealth creation and ultimately optimize living standards across the world. But what's interesting is if you do an MBA or if you study macroeconomics today, you will undoubtedly study Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. But what's interesting is that alongside that book, which was his great seminal work that everyone knows about, Adam Smith wrote another equally important, if not more important work that's often forgotten. And it's called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Alongside The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And in it, what essentially Smith was doing was saying this idea of free markets, of free market economics, of the free allocation of labor and capital and resources to create wealth and optimize wealth creation, it's a great idea. 
It's going to do amazing things. But here is the warning. It's amoral. It doesn't mean it's good or it's evil. It doesn't mean it's good or bad. But it doesn't have any intrinsic morality built into it. We have to bring the moral petrol to this economic financial engine. And so a theory of moral sentiment stands as so important because it highlights the amorality of technology. And technology or techne is simply the art of making. It's simply human beings doing and making things. So yes, at the moment, when we think about the latest in technology, we're thinking and talking correctly about Web3, about decentralized finance, about cloud computing, about energy security, about energy storage, about optimizing supply chains. And these are all correct, but we shouldn't un misunderstand that technology is much more than just those things. Technology is simply anything that we have done or made that helps us to have a more convenient or comfortable lifestyle. A knife and fork, that was a te technological innovation. The printing press was a technological innovation. Shoes were a technological innovation. Hats were a technological innovation. And as the case with financial markets, another technological innovation and free market economics, as is the case with all of these things, they are neither intrinsically bad nor are they intrinsically good. They simply are. And what we do with them determines the degree to which they feed and optimize human flourishing or they work against human flourishing. You can use a knife to cut vegetables to make a delicious meal for someone else um, or you can use a knife to kill someone else. In the same way, technology today, whether it's Web3 or anything else that we're dealing with, is intrinsically amoral. Now, it's interesting that a lot of our free market thinkers and a lot of people that practice in the free market to optimize capital seem to have forgotten this. And so it's really important that we continue to reflect on and re-remind ourselves. In a recent interview, a Silicon Valley billionaire said in the Financial Times that making money and growing unicorns today is conceptually quite simple. All you have to do is build products, services and networks of utility. And there we have one of the problems. Many of us have reduced the metric of success in our global financial system to simply optimizing utility. Now that is adding a moral framework to an amoral system. The problem is it's not quite enough. If utility is all we're looking for, we forget about suffering, we forget about service, we forget about sacrifice, we forget about other people essentially. All we are trying to do is optimize profits. Now, I'm not saying that we can't bring alongside more than this to the amoral financial markets and to technology, but we've got to do it proactively. And this is the key to understanding the amorality of technology. We have to bring to it, because all technology is amoral, we have to bring the morality to it. We have to bring first principles. We have to bring founding and grounding ideals to our use of technology. Because it's intrinsically amoral, unless and until someone brings moral petrol to the engine, it won't operate in a moral way. It won't operate for human flourishing. We will be reduced to very simple and specific and granular outcomes and objectives, like simply making money. That's the simplest one. So the amorality of technology points to our need for first principles. Someone's got to bring first principles to technology. Secondly, the individualizing effect of technology. 
Now there was a sociologist called Robert Bella who talked about expressive individualism. He traced it back to the 1800s. This idea that people just want to self-actualize. They want to express who they are. Charles Taylor, who's a more recent scholar, a moral philosopher, um, dubbed it the age of authenticity. And this 21st century very much is a continuation of this, this age of authenticity. Be who you are, you do you, your best self. And this idea put forward by thinkers like Bella and Taylor and, and countless others encapsulates what's driving a lot of people today. We are told that making yourself happy and feeling good and optimizing your convenience and pleasure and minimizing your inconvenience is the purpose of everything and everyone, including technology. Now, what Charles Taylor and others have identified is that this idea of expressive individualism or you know, self-actualization or self-fulfillment, it really took off after the Second World War. And one of the reasons why that is the case, it's not the only reason, but it's a driving reason, is that most technological innovation in the last 150 years or so tends to individualize. It's very focused on us. It turns us inwards, whether it's the smartphone or the iPad or the invention of television or the internal combustion engine and the motor car. All of these things turn people in on themselves. They make us necessarily less reliant on other people, less dependent on other people, whether it's for entertainment, whether it's for pleasure, whether it's for help, whether it's for information, whether it's for conversation. Technology, as a general principle, tends to turn us inward. It tends to have an individualizing effect. It turns us inward on ourselves. And this age of authenticity, this sense of expressive individualism is both fed by and exacerbated by a lot of technological innovation. Now, what that tells us is that technology can be a good thing, but as I said, it's amoral. So we need to bring the first principles. If we don't bring first principles, technology will have a drifting effect on us and will turn us inwards on ourselves. And a perfect example of that is where you see a family at a restaurant and everyone's just on their smartphones. Everyone's just on their smartphones. So what do we need to do to work against this, or at least to remedy and restore the balance. We need to have a commitment above and beyond what the world would ordinarily have to relationality. Because individualization is the opposite of relationality. So we need to re-establish relationality. You know, it's no coincidence that Martin Luther, the great Christian theologian and thinker, in his definition of sin, as he was exegeting the word sin out of the letters of Paul, primarily the, the Paul's letter to the Romans, Martin Luther said that the definition of sin, in keeping with St. Augustine's definition from many years before that, is best described as men and women curved in on themselves. Sin is men and women curved in on themselves. It's not a coincidence, I don't think, that that's exactly the kind of language that thinkers like Taylor and Bella talk about, use, when they're talking about the individualizing effect of technology. It's not that technology makes us more sinful, but technology offers a pathway through which our inward-facing nature can be facilitated and grown and nurtured in a way that is unhealthy and works against relationality. So, the amorality of technology points to our need for first principles. The individualizing effect of technology points to our need to commit to relationality, to put relationality first interacting with other people, building authentic relationships of trust, both virtually and physically with other people. Thirdly and finally then, to end on a positive note, the opportunity of technology. Now, the former president and CEO 
of the Intel Corporation, a guy by the name of Andrew Grove. He talked about strategic inflection points. Now he was using this concept in the context of companies. All companies come to a strategic inflection point, some big moment, some line in the sand where everything is shaken up. There is either a disruption in the market or a global political revolution or a financial crisis or a recession or something. The pandemic is a perfect example of a strategic inflection point for pretty much all of us in every sector. And Andrew Grove said, coming out of a strategic inflection point, whether you're an entrepreneur or a business leader or a mother or a father, you have to think about two things. There are two determining factors that determine the degree to which a company or a person can succeed out of an inflection point. The first is, do you understand your knowledge power and do you understand your position power? And if you're able to use both of those two things to platform into the next season, you will do well. And the strategic inflection point can either go up or it can go down. And if you get your knowledge power and position power right, it will go up. Now, what do those two things mean? It seems like a lot of weasel words from an MBA course. Knowledge power is simply, what do you know that you have to offer in the marketplace that no one else knows or no one else knows as well as you? So a set of expertise, if you like. And your position power, what's your position in the marketplace? What resources do you have? What kind of reputation and relationships and networks do you have? What kind of capacity and training and education do you have? So knowledge and position power, when we look at Web3, when we look at decentralized finance, when we look at technology in the 21st century, is interestingly and fascinatingly and wonderfully geared in a very particular way for people who are followers of Jesus. Because followers of Jesus have knowledge of the message of Jesus Christ. And that message of Jesus Christ offers the exact things that I've been talking about that we need. We need first principles to infuse the amorality of technology with moral content. And the gospel message does that. It offers us first principles, the intrinsic value and dignity of all people, the worth of all people, the call to alleviate suffering, the call to reach out to others and serve others, the call to improve the quality of life of those around us. And it also offers us the basis for relationality. According to the message of Jesus Christ, people are fundamentally relational. We're not utility-based. Like the Silicon Valley billionaire would say, we need relationship with others more than we need utility, more than we need money or a comfortable life. We actually need authentic relationships with the people around us. And so the message of Jesus points to the knowledge power of every follower of Jesus to bring to the technological table, if you like, to bring to the technological marketplace. That's the first thing the knowledge power there. Secondly, the position power. Now, position power depends more specifically on you. What is your training? What is your level of resources? What is your capital? What are your ideas? Are you an entrepreneur? Are you an, are you an investor? Are you a, a professional in a multinational corporation? Are you an executive? Are you a junior? Are you working way, your way up? For each of us, our position power will be different. The key biblically to utilizing technology well and making sure that we're making the most of the opportunity of technology is understanding and reflecting on the knowledge power we have, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the position power we have, which is where he's placed us and the expertise he has given us to go forward. All of this comes together in a helpful way in Acts 17 in the Bible, where Paul goes to Athens and what does he do? He first goes to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, and he preaches the gospel. He explains the message of Jesus through the Jewish scriptures. Then he goes to the marketplace and he explains it 
through the marketplace, the concepts of the marketplace. And then he goes to the Areopagus, which is pretty much a university. He gives a TED talk and he does it there through the Greek and the Roman philosophers. He quotes Greek and Roman philosophy. And so what is he doing in each of these three places? He's doing the same thing. He's taking the concepts and issues. He's taking his knowledge power and his position power, and he's communicating the very same message of Jesus Christ for the betterment of the people around him in a spirit of service and sacrifice and love and joy. So Albert Einstein may well have been right that yes, sadly, it has become appallingly obvious that our technology has surpassed our humanity. But through the Christian message, we have exactly what we need to counter that, to restore the balance, to bring our humanity up, not just to the same level as our technology, but well and truly beyond it. Because through the Christian message, we have the first principles that we need, the first principles of love and sacrifice and dignity and the worth of all people. We also have the call to relationality. Christianity ultimately is about relationship, two categories of a relationship, our relationship with God and our relationships with those around us. And thirdly and finally, it offers us the knowledge power and the position power uniquely to each of you, depending on who you are, what your expertise is, what your ideas are and what your position is and your plans are for going forward into the marketplace. It offers us that combination of knowledge power and position power to be proactive, to take the message of not just the message of Jesus in an explicit way, but also to utilize technology to alleviate the suffering of those around us, to improve the quality of life of those around us. And through that and alongside that, to actually take the message of Jesus in an explicit way as well. The Christian message uniquely gives us exactly what we need to make the most of technology for the good of those around us and in keeping with what all followers of Jesus are called to do well, to love God, and to love the world around us.